Let's ask the Lord for a blessing upon the reading of his word. Shall we pray? Gracious God and Father, your word is life, and it is the light that shines in the darkness of this world to bring life to men. Bring that light to us now. Remove distractions from us. Keep us from the straying thoughts and sleepiness of the body. Keep us from the temporal challenges of this life. Keep us from the tendencies we have, Lord, to attend only for brief moments. And help us to devote ourselves to your word that we might experience the rich blessing of your grace in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Turn with me to 1 Samuel 13. 1 Samuel 13. We're going to read the entire chapter. Our text is the verses 1 through 15. 1 through 15. Page 277 in your pew Bibles, 277. That's where you find 1 Samuel 13. You'll remember that in 1 Samuel 11, we had that very glorious moment of where everything went right. Everything was as it should be. Saul did exactly as the Lord commanded and the people were delivered. Indeed, the salvation of God was experienced by God's people. Then Samuel uh, finishes that aspect of his ministry, that aspect that involved the arrival of a king. So in 1 Samuel 12, he closes that chapter. And now in chapter 13, the story continues. And now the wheels begin to fall off. 1 Samuel 13, beginning at verse 1. Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and the hill country of Bethel, and a thousand were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan def- defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout the, all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it, and all Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped at Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. Some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came, and Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I've not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Samuel said to Saul, you've done foolishly. You've not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue the Lord has sought out, or sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you've not kept what the Lord commanded you. 
Samuel arose and went for up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up from or went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him about 600 men. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, and the people who were present with him stayed in Gibeah or Gibeah of Benjamin, but the Philistines encamped at Michmash. And raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned toward Ophrah to the land of Shul, and another company turned, turned toward Beth Horon, and another company toward, turned toward the border that looks down on the valley of Zeboim toward the wilderness. There was, now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the, and for the mattocks, and a third of a shekel for sharpening the axes and for setting the goads. So on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any people with Saul or, and Jonathan. But Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. Thus for the reading of God's holy word. Again, our text is the verses 1 through 15. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, our Lord, we have in our text one of those passages that I think makes people uncomfortable or that leaves people with the impression about our God that He is not a kind or gracious God. He should be the kind of God that offers repeatedly second, third, fourth, fifth, 1,000 chances. That's surely the kind of God we want to worship. Indeed, don't we as God's people even at times think that way? We think that God is in the business of giving us a second chance. He's the God of second chances, people say. And then we come to a passage like this, and there are no second chances. Saul has been ordained as king. He has done a beautiful thing when he uh, defeated Nahash. You'll remember 1 Samuel 11. And now he does one thing wrong. Just one small mistake. He runs ahead. He goes to church early. That's, that's really, you might say, all that he did. He went to church early. And God says, that's it. You're not a king anymore. You're done. I'm done with you. Someone else is going to be king now. And in a couple of chapters, we're going to meet that someone else. Pretty quickly, we're going to meet David. Saul is done. God is done with Saul. He has been cast, you might say, into the ash heap of history because he went to church early. Surely that doesn't sound like our God. That doesn't sound like a God we want to worship. That doesn't sound like the God that we want to fear, does it? We want a God who gives second chances. We want a God who says, yes, you made a mistake, but don't worry about it. It's okay. And that's certainly true that, that God gives second chances, that God is gracious, that God is forgiving. We can't deny any of that, surely. And part of the reason we might struggle with this issue, part of the reason we might struggle with a passage like this is because we do tend to approach the Old Testament in a way that is less than helpful. Not altogether wrong, but not always helpful. What I mean is, is that we tend to come to the Old Testament and try to identify with all of the characters ourselves. We meet someone, a David, a Daniel. We meet these characters and we say, now what do they teach me about me? And how can I be like them? How can I dare to be a Daniel? 
How can I be like Saul? What is, what is Saul teaching me about how I should live my life? And, and there's a reason for why we tend to approach the Old Testament that way. That's often how it's preached. That's often what we hear on podcasts, on sermons online. We hear ministers tell stories like this and they, and they tell us the six things that Saul did wrong so that you don't do them wrong as well. Saul's held up for us as an example of who we're to be. But if that's the case, then we're all in a lot of trouble because one mistake and God says, you're done. Go to church early, you're done. And that's a frightful thing. And that's, and that's sometimes also how we think of God. Sometimes we get afraid of God because we think if we make one mistake, if we do one thing wrong, then He'll catch us and He'll punish us and look out. Don't make God angry. We turn God into this cruel tyrant, this fearful deity when He is anything but. He is kind and gracious. He is fatherly and loving. He is the God of forgiveness and of mercy. But not with Saul. Well, maybe that doesn't help. Maybe if we take His name away and we put His office in there, maybe that would help. God is gracious and kind to His people, but He demands perfect righteousness of his Messiah. Saul's the Messiah. Saul's the anointed one of God. That's what Messiah means. The Messiah that the people of Israel wanted, you'll remember. They wanted a king that would bless them like the world. This Messiah was supposed to be a blessing. And yet he decides that he will not bless his people. That he will not walk in the way of the Lord and in the way of righteousness. He decides he knows better than God. Do you want God to give that Messiah a second chance? Do you want God to give that Messiah an opportunity? How often should the farmer who sends the shepherd out with his sheep continue to hire that shepherd when he returns each night with significantly fewer sheep? How often should the gardener pay his assistant who keeps chopping down his prize-winning rose bushes? How often should the chairman allow the VP of finance to steal from the company? How long should the Lord let a Messiah who is intended to bless the people curse the people? We are grateful then that God says, no, I love my people too much for that. I will not let that happen. Which is what happens in our text. A text that begins with the description of Saul and the people after the events of the renewal ceremony, after the events of Samuel's farewell address. Saul sends the vast majority. Remember that army that came out was great. He sends them all home, save for a small group. 2,000 stay with him and 1,000 stay with Jonathan. It is, you might say, not a standing army per se. It's really too small to be a standing army. But we might describe this as bodyguards, as as a group of soldiers that could work in a pinch if there was a problem. And, And so this king and his son, they take up their positions and they start to take up the responsibility of being king. Remember before this, Saul was still plowing in the field. Now he's taking up the responsibility of being King. And king, you remember, is a big thing. I mean, it was a big thing for the people that wanted him to be king. They wanted to be blessed. They wanted to be 
uh, like the nations of the world. They wanted immediate temporal blessings. They weren't concerned with eternal redemptive blessings. They were concerned with now. Make our lives happy now. The people of God should have desired a king that would advance the kingdom of God, that, that would advance the gospel message that would exercise dominion over the earth, that would be a light to the nations. That's what the king was supposed to be. This king was supposed to provide leadership to God's people, as you might say, as, as, as though he who protected the, ch- the church, who guarded the church, he who defeated her enemies, he who proclaimed to the world the gospel of salvation. The king was supposed to ensure that worship could take place. Ensure that there was a people that could worship. And ensure that others heard about this worship of the Lord. This was Saul's calling. And now Saul waits upon the Lord. Now Saul and Jonathan wait as their armies are sent home, as their guards, as their group of specialized soldiers sit around. And and suddenly something happens, we read. Jonathan Jonathan decides to go to war. We don't hear much about it. We just read that Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba. And it sounds, doesn't it, as though Jonathan was proactive there, that it wasn't that he was attacked, it was that he attacked. He took the thousand men with him and he ended their presence in the very heart of Israel. You ought to understand that Geba was, you might say, as deep in Israelite territory as you could get. The fact that there was a garrison of the Philistines there suggests that the Philistines are more than just uh, enemies on the borders of Israel, more than just annoying uh, disruptions to Israelite life. They are the rulers. They are the sovereigns over the promised land at this time. If you can place in someone's house uh, your, uh, your army, your soldiers, then that house is under your control. And that's exactly what, what's going on here. That's what's implied here. Philistia so controls Israel, they can have a garrison in Geba. And what Jonathan does is he says, no more, and that's enough. And Jonathan defeats them. Now we're going to see more about Jonathan uh, in the next chapter. We're going to see the kind of man he is. We won't spend too much time on it now. All we need to know is that this instigates a moment. The Philistines hear and they become bothered and they muster. They're going to come out to war and now Saul has to respond. Let the, let the Hebrews hear and now he musters again. And now the Philistines come at Michmash. You read the passage and you know all of what's going on. The people get terrified. Here comes the might. This isn't Nahash uh, uh, the Ammonite. This is the Philistines. These are the people that are running the show. This army is about to wreak havoc upon the Israelites. So everybody flees into the caves and into the mountains. They're going to get away. And now the army with Saul starts to get fearful and they start to melt away. And so Saul faces a challenge. And that's the thing that we want to see at the outset in this event. That's what we want to understand in the first place. That as Saul is serving the Lord now, he is called to face a rather significant challenge. 
He's called as king to fulfill his task as king for the sake of his people. It is, it is the people in this story that we should be identifying with if we're to identify with anybody. The fleeing into the hills, the fearfulness of the enemy. That is where we should find ourselves in this story. That's where we should be identifying our own experience. And, and I think it's not hard for us to do that. I, I know that, that it's not quite the same today, although there is certainly an analogy, isn't there, in what's going on in the Middle East now. And you think of all those rockets that fly or that flew those few weeks ago into Israel and, and how that brought devastation and death. And then what do the people, who do the people look to? Who do they look to to deliver them and to save them from this hardship? They look to their leadership. They look to their prime minister. They look to their army. And the church today faces increasingly attacks and, and pressures against, against her, her witness and her work. We, we are becoming a stench to the world around us. Our thought leaders, our political leaders do not like the Gospel, do not like the things of the Word, do not like what the Word says. They don't like the morality of the Word stand in the public square and say, I believe that all sexual immorality, all of it, adultery, pornography, same-sex attraction, transgenderism, it's all wicked. And see if the world loves you. See if the world doesn't come against you. See if they don't muster their forces as Philistia did. Think of our witness and our work within this world and see how the enemy comes so boldly against us and insists that we be quiet and that we put the Word down. And then who do we look to? Who do we look to for help and strength? As parents who are called to raise children in this environment, as church that's called to stand fast and faithful in this environment. It's no easy thing. It's no easy thing for the church to maintain a winsome and yet faithful witness within our world. How do we do it? And you can understand why we might make our faith private. We might make our spirituality personal. And we might just say, leave me alone. If I just go about my business quietly, no offending anyone, I'll be fine. In our jobs, in our businesses, in our work. Let's not cause waves. Let's Let's avoid the trouble. Let's not be destroyed. It is easy and tempting for us as church community to think that discretion is the better part of valor, and maybe it is at times. And so to flee like the Israelites in this day, seeing that the enemy is too great, we can't possibly win, into the hills. Let's avoid the challenge. Let's not stand for the Lord. And who do we look then to? Who do we look then to for this help and strength? The Israelites fled and it pressed Saul into service. It forced Saul now to stand and be counted as king. Now he had to fulfill the office given to him by God. Now he had to show his worth. And how does he then do? There is, by the way, 
a number of very challenging textual questions in the original language that arise in this passage. I won't identify all of them, but there are a lot. It's a very difficult passage to translate and then to interpret. We're not going to wade into them too deeply. There are plenty of explanations one way or another for each of the challenging words in this text, and we certainly find nothing in them that would shake our confidence in the infallible and inerrant Word of God. But one of the challenges that's worth noting concerns verse 8. For verse 8 we read, He waited seven days the time appointed by Samuel. And the question becomes, when did Samuel appoint that seven days? Now we did hear Samuel do that once. In chapter 10, when Saul was anointed, Saul got, or Samuel says to Saul, uh, he gives them all of those signs. Remember all the signs that he gave to Saul that confirmed that he would be king. And in verse 8 it says, Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I'm coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait. Now, that can't be these seven days, can it? Because, of course, think of what's happened in between the death or the destruction of Nahash and that whole business and then the farewell address of Samuel, the renewal of the kingdom. That takes more than seven days to accomplish. So when did Samuel say to Saul, before you attack the Philistines, wait seven days for me? Well, we don't really know. And maybe it was just something that was a standing order. It is entirely possible that Samuel had said to Saul, before you ever engage in battle, before you ever go in war against the enemies, you need to wait. You need to wait till I come, and I will come and bring the offering before the Lord, and I will bring the sacrifice. Remember, Samuel was a Levite. He could do those things. And I will seek the Lord's favor for the armies. And there's good reason to believe that that would be at least a wise course of action for the armies of Israel, whose army's strength was not in their number, but in their Lord. Remember, the Lord had told His people and had shown His people that victory did not come by the might of their their arms, of their legs, of their horses, of their swords and spears. It came by His might. Remember, just already in the chapter before, in that business of the thunder and lightning at the wheat harvest, and the Lord can bring power to bear in these moments. He can do amazing things. Think about what happened when the ark was outside of Israel, and, and think about how the Lord defeated the Philistines then, bringing the ark back. The strength of the church is not in its number, but in its Lord. And so when Samuel says, wait seven days. He's saying, wait upon the Lord. Acknowledge the Lord as your sovereign. Bend the knee before God, Saul. Show to the people that your trust is in the great King of Kings. Make it so that the people know you follow your God. Now that reason it's important that we give that some thought is because when Saul, Saul sees that Samuel's not coming, he decides to take, you might say, the bull by the horns. Bring the burnt offerings, he says, and peace offerings, and he offered the burnt offering. Now, he wasn't a Levite. You remember that. He was a Benjaminite. 
He wasn't allowed to do these things. God hadn't given him that authority. What is more, as king, his first responsibility was not to say, okay, God, on our timeline, his first responsibility was to say to the people, be calm, be patient. The Lord will work salvation for us. Trust in Him. Trust in the Lord. For He will give us the victory. And instead, Saul decides to go ahead on his own. Instead, Saul decides to increase or up the Lord's timetable to force God into action. A similar event as what they did when they brought the Ark of the Covenant with Hophni and Phinehas out to the army. We're going to force God to bless us. We're going to force God to give us victory. Saul says essentially, not by Your timetable, Lord, but by mine. I will not serve you, Lord, but you will serve me. And what a thing for any believer, any member of the church to say, for any Christian to believe. None of us should ever insist upon God's timing. Lord, now, do it now or else. That is not the way of the believer. The believer rests. The believer trusts. The believer waits. Indeed, what does the Lord say to us so very profoundly and powerfully through the prophet Isaiah? He gives power to the faint. To him who has no mighty increases strength. Even youth shall, be, shall faint and be weary. Young men shall fall exhausted. But those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up on wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. We should wait upon the Lord. We should trust in His plan and providence. We should trust His will and His word. But we have a hard time with that, don't we? We're not, we're not so different from Saul. We're not so different from any of the people in the history of redemption who have done this as well. Think of Peter. Think, think of Peter as Jesus Christ is there being accused and being tried, and Peter denies his Lord three times because Peter couldn't wait. Peter Peter couldn't wait for the outcome of this event. He thought he knew he'd run ahead of God, and he knew that things were going to go badly. He knew that the the plan was over. The, The party was ended. There was no hope anymore. Why should I stand with the Messiah? Defeat has come upon us, not victory. How often do we not despair? How often do we not get discouraged in our spiritual lives? How often in the trials and in the circumstances of life do we not find ourselves thinking it's too much, Lord. It's too much. I can't wait anymore. My loneliness is too much, Lord. I cannot wait anymore, Lord. This marriage, if it doesn't fix now, I I, I, I can't wait, Lord. So often we run ahead of God. So often we don't wait upon the Lord, but we wait or we expect the Lord to to do what we expect, what we demand. We're not unlike Saul here. The difference is none of us is the Messiah. None of us is the one appointed to bring blessing to His people by sacrificial service, by leading the people in righteousness, by inspiring them, by His sacrificial service, by His willingness to say, let all men flee, but I will stand and wait upon the Lord. 
Those 2,000 men, those 3,000 men that surrounded Saul were melting away and it was 1,000 and it was, 500, or it was 800 and then 700 and now 600. Saul says 600. How am I? Look at the Philistine. It's like the 3,000 chariots, 7,000. I can't fight with 600. Oh no, Saul? What about Gideon and his 300? What about the Lord of hosts to whom Hannah prayed? Saul had forgotten his God. Saul no longer served his God. Saul was no longer fulfilling his office as Messiah by leading the people in obedience to God. He was not trusting God. And do you want a Messiah then? Do you want the Lord to leave a Messiah in place who doesn't bring us closer to the Lord? Who doesn't bring us closer to His will and word? Truth is, we often say yes to that. Yes, give me a Messiah that makes my life better now. Give me a Messiah that will address my felt needs now. We don't think past our moments and sometimes because the pain and the sorrow is so present, we can't. But we ought to look beyond and see what Christ has done. We ought to be reminded of the words of the Apostle Paul who challenges us to lift our eyes ever heavenward and to be encouraged beyond the things of this life. We do not lose heart, he says, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look to the things that are unseen, not to the things that are seen. For the things that are seen are transient. The things that are unseen are eternal. We see that Jesus Christ is the better King not because He makes our immediate circumstances better, but because He deals with the real problem, because He deals with the real issue, because He does what is necessary for us, even though He had to do it by Himself. Everybody fled. No one was with Jesus. But He stood fast. For He is the great Messiah. He is the great Messiah. And that's why Samuel, when he comes to Saul, says, you're done. You're done. We all make mistakes. We all falter and fail. I mean, let those without sin cast the first stone and all that. Give them a second chance. But the sin that has gripped Saul's heart is too deep. Indeed, in so many ways, we are reminded here of the very first expressions of sin in this world. For you remember when Adam fell into sin, then God came to Adam. Where are you? And then you remember what Adam did? He didn't say, Lord, I've, I've, I've failed. Forgive me. Adam said, Lord, it's not my fault. It's probably your fault. And if it's not your fault, it's probably Eve's fault. It's not my fault. And we've been doing the same thing ever since. And Saul does it in glorious detail here. He's confronted by Samuel. What have you done? And Saul doesn't say, I, I tried to get God to 
to, to follow my timetable. I wanted God to, to serve me. I made a mistake, Samuel. I, I've, in arrogance, I have lorded it over the, lo- the Lord. He doesn't say that. When I saw that the people were scattering from me, it's not my fault. The people were scattering, you see. And that you didn't come, not my fault. You weren't here. If you'd been here, it wouldn't have been my fault. Then I said, uh, I've not sought the favor of the Lord. I really wanted to be pious, Samuel. I did. So I forced myself. I didn't want to do it. I had to do it. I have forced myself to do it. All sorts of excuses and explanations. All sorts of reasons for why it really wasn't his fault. He doesn't accept responsibility. Instead, he lays the blame at the feet of others. And that's, that's not, never good. It's never a good thing. But in the history of redemption, it's, it's certainly a really bad thing. It's a really bad thing when we remember that that is the mark of, of sin's grip upon someone's heart. That the evidence of the Spirit's presence in someone's life is that they own their sin. They do the unthinkable. They, they say, have mercy on me, a sinner. But human nature... A sinful heart says, not my fault. Adam did it, Saul does it here. And it exposes to us the truth of this Messiah that he can be no Messiah, for he cannot live according to the righteousness of God. And so God rightly, for the sake of his own people, that his people might be blessed, says, enough. You're done. I'm not waiting anymore for you to mess up my church. I'm not going to let you lead my flock in this way. You are not the man of my choosing my Man of cho- the man of my choosing is a righteous man, a man after my own heart. And though it may seem to us cruel, it ought to be something that we embrace and that we pursue. Because too un- unfortunately, too often we don't. We don't. Oh, we should give second chances to everyone. Third, fourth, fifth. We should be gracious and merciful to fellow believers all day long as God is merciful to us. As often as the Lord grants us forgiveness, we ought to give forgiveness to each other. Don't misunderstand me. I only mean that when it comes to our Messiahs, we shouldn't give second chances. And we give way too many second chances to our Messiahs. Think culturally of our current countries or our country's current fascination with the Messiah of Marxism. Marxism is becoming the dominant political philosophy of our age, this idea that there is, or to understand life, you just have to think in terms of oppression. Somebody's getting oppressed. Somebody's oppressing. Figure out who are the oppressors and harm them. Get rid of them. Cancel them. That's Marxism today. That's the culture in which we live today. Marxism didn't work for 70 years in the Soviet Union. It won't work now. So why, are our, why is our country giving it a second chance? Why are they giving this Messiah a second chance? Now that's just our country. We're not talking about ourselves yet. But too often we do the same thing. We place our trust and our hope in Messiahs that we think will bless. Sometimes it's a lifestyle. Sometimes it's our addictions. And too often we give our addictions a second chance. There comes a time where we don't like how they make our lives miserable. And then maybe we give them up for a season. Maybe we we say, that's it, I'm, I'm, I'm quitting. And for a day or two or a week or a month. And then we think, you know, it really wasn't that bad. Let's give that a second chance. Or a relationship. 
Too often our relationship standards are given a second chance. We think that if we get the right person in our life, our life will be better. If we have the right relationship, we'll be happy and healthy and wealthy and all the rest of it. And so we try to find somebody based on our expectations and standards, somebody that will make our life immediately better. And those standards end up in our being disappointed, our being discouraged, our experiencing pain. And and so we say, well, that's it. I'm not going to do that again. And we end that relationship and then we start another one all over again. We give our relationship standards a second chance. We give our money a second chance. Too often money is our Messiah. A little bit more and we'll be happy. Just a little bit more and we'll be happy. Give it a second chance. We shouldn't give our Messiah second chances. We should be thankful that the Lord doesn't give Saul a second chance. That the Lord says, I love my people more than that. I love them so deeply that I'm going to ensure that they have the perfect Messiah. Indeed, so committed to this is God that though it cost him his son, he will bless his people. He will make sure that they have a shepherd who leads them to green pastures, that they have a savior who delivers them from the power of sin, that they have a Lord who brings blessing into their lives. He is going to do what is necessary for all of us because God loves us so deeply. So trust his choice for you. Trust his Messiah. Not Not just when you hear the good news of his forgiveness and of his grace, but when he says, follow me. Walk in my way. Let me show you. Let's stand now. For a moment, sit there with Saul and his troops as they're melting away, as the armies before them. And as Jesus says, stand with me. Then stand. Don't fear. And though you give your life Give it in service to this king. Sacrifice all for his way and will. For his is the way of victory. His is the way of deliverance. His is the way of grace and goodness and love and of second chances. If you would know that mercy, if you would know that power, then get rid of all of the Messiahs we foolishly follow and surrender all to this one. For he is the one alone who can bless. You see, our God in the end is not cruel at all. The world tells us He is to try to get us off of our God. He is so kind, so kind, so gracious and merciful. He will lead you where you need to go. Trust Him. Put your hand in His and walk with the Lord. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we pray that You would receive our thanks for the gift of Your Son. We're grateful that You didn't give Saul a second chance. Not because, Lord, we think that people who make mistakes should be judged immediately, but because Messiahs should be perfect and they should lead us in service to You and they should help us see Your glory. And we're grateful that You've given us that Messiah. We live in a world that's chasing after false Messiahs. Help us to show them the more excellent way. Help us to say, come. Come with us to church. I want you to meet someone. He's the perfect Messiah. Amen.